0: Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. From the last book of the Bible the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. God's word says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for your word. We pray that you would make us open. That you would make us hearing. You would make our spirits lean in. That you would make us thirsty. And that you would satisfy us by your Holy Spirit's accompanying your word into our hearts to seal us and convict us and invigorate us by it. Father, as I preach, I preach that, I I pray for purity and clearness and conviction given by the Holy Spirit. We pray, Heavenly Father, your Holy Spirit reign over the preaching and the hearing today that you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, do you guys remember Christmas as a kid? That, uh, that in possibly long month. Uh, between Thanksgiving and Christmas where all the decorations come out and slowly but surely these beautiful packages come out and are laid under the tree and your names are on some of them and they have very intriguing shapes and sometimes if you shake them they make very interesting noises. You just can't hardly wait for Christmas morning You're told to go to bed on Christmas Eve. It's the hardest night in the world to sleep. And you can't hardly wait to wake up. You wake up as as early as you've ever woken up. I remember one morning I woke up, I think it was at 5 a.m., and I was so stirred up and excited, the first thing I did was throw up. And then you run out, and you see all the presents, and and you, you gather them all up in this big, Fort-like piles so that you can start tearing into them. And you see all these things. You open them and, and you start to play with them. And they're exciting and they're fun. And then you go and you eat and you have all of your favorite foods. And it's just a wonderful day. And it just seems like everything you wanted is just delivered. And then suddenly you notice it's around 7 p.m. And most of the day is over. All the presents have been opened All of the good food has been tasted and bedtime is coming and this special day of Christmas is almost over again. And you feel before you go to bed a strange sadness. Remember that sadness? It's over. All this thing I looked forward to is over. Well, well, If you remember that, that I think it is a great reminder from today's text that when we are in the gospel, nothing will be truly over that is good. We have been using the uh, text of Revelation uh, in a series we've been calling All Things New as we've been going through Advent to remind us that We as Christians live between two Advents. The first Advent is the Advent of the coming of Christ as a a baby laid in a manger back in the first century. But that first Advent is a promise of a second Advent, that the one who has come will come again to bring in the new heavens and the new earth, to reign, to make all things new. And so as we come to Christmas every year, we live in what we call the already and the not yet. The already is, we already know what is, what is true because Christ has come. We have already experienced and tasted the gospel. But there's also a great deal of the promises that wait fulfillment that have not yet come. And so when we live in Christmas, we are to, to live uh, celebrating what has happened and yearn for what is yet to come. And so we have been looking at that that tension each week through Advent. Last week, as we finished up Revelation 21, we saw that Christmas proclaims that the one who brings a better Eden, the city of God, has come. And we saw how the, the new Eden that we will dwell in is created for us to enjoy the fullness of God. This week, we are going to see that Christmas proclaims that the one who brings everlasting life has come. It is the recognition that Christ brings everlasting life, that he has come at Christmas, that is the, the rescue. Of the disappointment, of the melancholy that we have experienced in our Christmases. You see, I think that melancholy comes from the fact that a lot of us get caught up in the Christmas of the world. We get caught up in the the Christmas of of buying and packing and and giving and receiving all sorts of things, which are are good. And I'm not here to. Uh, uh, to say that that's not happening, except uh, my own kids should probably downplay some of their expectations. But, but there's, there's this, this hurriedness about Christmas, about making a perfect day every year, a day where everything goes right, a day where everybody is happy. And every time we, we focus on that Christmas, we ache because we're hit with how temporary and fleeting And unsatisfying it is. Even at my age, when that is the Christmas I get sucked into, I come to a point where I say, is there more? And maybe you've had that question. Is there more? Christmas does another thing to remind us of how temporary life is. Christmases measure time. By all odds, most of us only have 80 or maybe 90 Christmases total. We're running out of Christmases. I don't know how many Christmases you have left. You see, this world's Christmas counts our aging and keeps track of the fact that we're moving through this world pretty fast. And so underneath that unsatisfying, fleeting feeling is also a small reminder that whispers in our ears, this may be your last Christmas. How many Christmases do you have? You're running out. And sometimes Christmases accomplish the exact opposite of all that I've described. Sometimes there's no anticipation. Sometimes your life is in a situation where it is just crummy. And I want this day Gone. I want this day off of the calendar. Everything about Christmas just seems to put a laser on every crummy feeling I have. Beloved, those are the feelings of being set upon of this world Christmas. But as we look at Revelation 22, we are to remember that Christmas is here to proclaim that the one who brings everlasting life has come. And if we celebrate this Christmas firmly fixed on the already and the not yet, then there is no disappointment because Christmas will point us to the permanent, to the eternal. It reminds us, yes, it has come, but it's not all here, but it's coming. The Christmas that Revelation announces to us is a Christmas of anticipation, Without letdown, because it is a Christmas that reminds us of this great gift of everlasting life Christ has brought to us. And so, I want us to dwell on that gift. I want to I want to make the case that that is the gift that you should be most thrilled with. And if that is the gift that you continue to unwrap, you will not be disappointed. I want to do that by by laying out from this text three marks of the everlasting life Christ brings us. I want us to see in this text that forever and ever we will flourish, that forever and ever we will be blessed, that forever and ever we will enjoy God. Let's go through each of these one by one. Forever and ever we will flourish. Our text uh, starts with these words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month." Beloved, because Christ has come, Christmas proclaims that the one who brings everlasting life has come. Forever and ever we will flourish. We look at this text and if we remember our Bibles or, or just, just a couple sermons ago, maybe 50 or so, the first, the first series of the year was on Genesis 1-3 through 3 and we took a, a dive through the, the, the description of Eden. And you recognize Eden is, is full of these pristine rivers, and in the middle of the, of the uh, place of Eden is the tree of life. So as we see these descriptors of, of waters of life and tree of life, we see that we end in a, a new Eden, a, 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 an Eden where it is apt to call it a place of life life flowing from the waters, life coming from the tree of life. This is what Eden will be, a place of life. What kind? What kind of life lays ahead for us? I believe we can see three attributes in this text. One, we can see that the life that is in Eden is pure. We are told that this water of life is bright, is crystal it is like the most beautiful river that you see in the in the mountains coming down from freshly melted snow except brighter and fresher this water is clean it is, it is sweet it is water of the highest quality and so we are we are saying as we drink of this water that we will have quality of life, never experienced this side of eden the second thing we can we can say of this life is that it is unending look at the description of this river it is flowing actively flowing constantly flowing there is no lack there is no limit to this water of life that is flowing without end. And we have unlimited access to it. The theologian, I um, can't remember his first name, his last name is Alexander. should have written down his first name, but uh, he described this life that we can look forward to in Eden this way, and I suspect it will encourage many of us. He says, no one will grow frail by becoming old in the new Jerusalem. Citizens of the new earth will experience and enjoy both wholeness of body and longevity of life. To live in the new Jerusalem is to experience life in all its fullness and vitality. It is to be in the prime of life always. In Eden, There's never those first four or five steps where your ankles are starting to work again. You know, you guys experience that? Or the the sore hips or everything's just kind of falling apart? That doesn't happen. The third thing we can say about this life as we look at this text is that it is productive. The water of life, pay attention, the water of life feeds the tree of life. It is the life in the water that comes out of the tree of life. The tree is nourished by this river. And what do we see of the tree of life? We see prodigious fruit. The tree of life is erupting with perfect fruit in season 12 months out of the year. It is always bearing fruit. Imagine this fruit. I mean, you've you've been to the store, and sometimes you've happened upon the perfect peach, and you got to eat that peach on the perfect day of its ripeness. And it just explodes in the sweet juices when you eat it. That is a foretaste of the perfect fruit that comes from this tree. Maybe you got to hear the story of your grandmas and grandpas talking about getting an orange for Christmas. Anybody hear that story? And we're like, who wants an orange? <laughs> so, that was a treat because it was a reminder of, of something that was rare that couldn't be had uh, regularly. We're, we're so in, embarrassed with, with fresh fruit. But in the, in the picture of the new heavens and the new earth, that orange is a, is a reminder there will be a day where the fruit will always be ripe. Now I want you to note well about, about the water of life and the tree of life. The effects of the water upon the tree of life does, every, does the same thing to everything who has access to the tree of life. This Water of life erupts productively in the tree of life, but it also erupts productively in all who drink of the water of life. Which is to say that as we drink of this water, we will enjoy productivity and fruitfulness. Look back at the very first psalm, which seems to to almost lay in the background of Revelation 22. We are told, blessed is the man who his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Beloved, you will be at the water of life. You will have that quality. You will have that unending aspect, and you will have the productivity of that water streaming through you. Here there is life that is full and beautiful and flourishing. What is the source of this water? Look again at the second part of verse 1. This water is flowing from the throne of God And of the Lamb. This water comes from God through His Son, the Lamb who was slain. And so, this text that points us to the very end reminds us that if you want this water, if you want to drink from this well, then pay attention to the first advent, to the first coming of Christ. Because the lamb who is the source of that water has come to offer you this water. You Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus comes up to a a Samaritan woman who has the baggage of many sins and much shame that she walks in the heat of the day to the furthest well so that she would not be seen to draw water. And when she gets there, she finds Jesus sitting as if there was an appointment for her that she didn't know about. And they have this conversation, and Jesus lets her know that what she is thirsty for, the water of life that will truly satisfy her, doesn't come from this well. It comes from him. He says to that woman what he says to all of us. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Beloved, at Christmas, if you know Christ, you celebrate that you already drink of the water of life. Amen? But before I leave this point, have you come to Christ? Have you come to his throne? Have you asked for the water of life? It is given to us again and again in the text that this water is given without price. It is given freely. But you must come You must confess Christ as Lord. You must receive the lamb for your sins. Forever and ever, we will flourish. Forever and ever, we will be blessed. We will be blessed. Now, it it, it took coming to the south uh, to learn how, Abused the word blessed (laughs) can be. When we talk about blessed here in this text, we're not talking about the humble brag, I'm just so blessed on Facebook or hashtag blessed, I've got a new awesome car or whatever. And we're certainly not talking about bless your heart. Whatever that is supposed to mean down here, I've heard it a lot. I've I've come to realize I, I wasn't being treated all that well. But these are not the words of blessing that God has for you in this text. What is blessed is what is in the New Eden. It means that you are in the place of the full favor and pleasure of God upon you. And that boils down to two basic things. One, an absence of anything cursed. And second, the presence of all good. Let us look at what those mean in turn. The absence of anything cursed. If you look at your text again, the first part of verse 3 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Accursed reminds us of how we lost Eden. When we ate of the forbidden fruit, when we disobeyed God's one commandment, when we chose to follow the leadership of the serpent rather than the lordship of God, God visited man, and one of the things he said is, cursed is the ground because of you. And those words as we have lived in this world are pregnant with catastrophe because the cursed ground is the source of so many sorrows. We live in a world where the curse is always present. We are always pushing against it. It is always crowding in, even on our joy. It is the chaos, it is the decay, it is the decline, it is the sweat that every good deed requires. But we are told in the new Eden, that is gone. There is no cursed thing. There is nothing under God's displeasure. There is nothing shackled and resistant to man. That is also what is meant in verse 5 when we are told that there will be no night. What that means is that there are no works of darkness in the new Eden. There's no time or place. God's light and presence shines on everything so that only what is good and pleasing exists there. So that's the absence, but also Dwell with me upon the presence of all good. The New Eden isn't a wax museum. We don't have a picture of the Stoic pic- uh, a vision of heaven where everything is just frozen in perfection and anything that happens can't happen because to happen would be to change. That's not the picture. The picture here is is that we are seeing life brought into the ideal, brought into the beautiful, brought into a place where active blessing and, and, and occurrences of good are happening over and over again. Again, look at the river, it's flowing. That water of life is the water of blessing, and it is flowing. In the new Eden, God is constantly pouring forth his goodness and blessing. It is a never-ending river. And it's fresh. It is always fresh. Meaning that you'll never grow tired It'll never be water that is stagnant. It will always have life and newness and delight in it. You know, we are told that even under the curse, God's mercies are new every morning. Even in the day of Jeremiah, who who lived in a wasteland of judgment He was promised and able to see mercies of God. It wasn't as bad as it could be. God was still doing good in the world. My goodness, what will it be like when there's no curse and there's all blessing? How much more delightful will that be? Paul says this in in his uh, letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 7. Let me read it for us. It says this, In the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, meaning age upon age upon age, one of the reasons eternity is the length of eternity is that's how much blessing God has to give. Ages upon ages, God will bless his people. I mean, imagine a billion Christmas mornings, not one of them disappointing, not one of them unexciting, every single one of them seemingly better than the one before. And then we are told this Interesting phrase about the leaves of the tree of life. It says that these leaves are for healing. Well, does that mean that there's actually going to be sickness in the, in the New Eden? Why do we need healing leaves? I believe that that is being a, a little bit too rigid with the reading. Healing is set against the idea of cursedness. What we are being told here is that the leaves of the tree of life represent the, the complete removal of the curse. As we're told by Paul in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, this is what will happen in the New Eden. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What the leaves of healing mean is that opposite, completely opposite to the experience of the curse, the creation will exist to do magnificent to be uh, unrestrained in its freedom to glorify God with its produce and its its productivity. What we have is a world that will have everything healthy, everything yielding magnificently, everything harmonious, cooperating with one another and multiplying. We've been reading in in, uh, Isaiah for our Advent readings. These are the things you will see in the new Eden, Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Isaiah eleven six, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. You see what this means. As far as the curse is found, we sing in joy to the world. But in truth, the new Eden tells us that the blessing will go further. It will be greater. And it will never end. God's blessing will be longer and more magnificent than all the days that this creation was under a curse. And we know, we know that this world of blessing that is held out, this inheritance that is held out is offered because we look back to the fact that Christ has come. We are given the inheritance of eternal blessing because Christ came to bear the curse. Paul tells us shocking words in the book of Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Beloved, the reason that we are able to look to a creation of infinite blessing and joy and magnificence is because the one who rightly deserves to be in that place came from heaven to be born into a manger, to live in a world where the curse was under every step, and then finally to be lifted up with nails upon a cross which was the universal symbol of the curse of God upon him. And it is because he bore the curse that he has set free every child of God and eventually every part of this creation from the curse brought upon it by sin. But to be part of that blessing Christ must bear your curse. It is a cry to repent and to confess, I need Christ for my life. Forever and ever we will be blessed. And the third, forever and ever we will enjoy God. In the new Eden, we will be glorified. Look at verse 4, the second half of verse 4. We are told in, the, in, in, in Eden, the new Eden, the new Jerusalem goes by many names. We are told this, his name will be on their foreheads. You will bear the name of God. Now, what does that mean? That means that you will have been brought into the final state of your sanctification. You will be brought into the place where there is true glorification. Your Christ-likeness is complete in this New Eden, you have the full uncorrupted, unmarred imago Dei, the image of God, but not just the one given to Adam, the one that has been restored and glorified for the new Eden. It is because finally in the new Eden that we are sanctified And holy, as he is holy, that we are able to bear his name because in the new Eden, God can write his name on us and say, that is a perfect reflection of my likeness. We bear his name because we will be like him in character. Not in divinity, there's no becoming God in this scenario or, or this picture, but we are created even in Eden. That is, that is part of who we are. That is part of, of of God's design. But we will be so made in His image of righteousness and goodness and holiness that we reveal His character. First John chapter three verse two—a verse we read last week, but is worth hearing again. It would be, yes, there it is. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. For me, what so thrills me about this Is that sin won't be a part of my nature anymore? I won't know shame. I won't know temptation. I will desire and do only what is good and pleasing. That is what it means that God's name will be on our foreheads, your forehead. You will for the first time and then for all time be incorruptibly good. Amen? All our deeds will be in the light of God and will praise God And yet, that's not the best part of verse 4. The highest blessing of all, the greatest part of the everlasting life that Christ has given us are these words. They will see his face. They will see his face. A careful reader of Scripture will notice that the greatest longing, or the desire that connects the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of the saints, is this desire to see God's face, to see him as he is, to behold him. And the Scriptures are uniform on this truth, No one has seen his face. Moses, in the the wilderness, cried out for one thing, God, let me see your face. And God said, I cannot show you my face, it would kill you. And so Moses was given a glimpse of the passing of God. He was given a glimpse of the backside of God. And just that glimpse so changed his complexion that he had to wear a veil his entire life because for people to look at the face that looked at the backside of God was too brilliant, it hurt. When Isaiah has his vision of God, the seraphim have covered God's face. We are incapable presently of seeing God's face. Physically we are told that God lives in unapproachable light. It would blind you to see God as he is right now. But even more, we can't see God's face even in our imagination. The second commandment of the Ten Commandments is you shall not make an image. Why is that number two? It is because there is no capacity in the human imagination to accurately render God as he truly is. The greatest mind, the greatest uh, thought we can come up with is a profanity compared to the full luminosity of God. And so God commands you, don't play the game of picturing me. I'm far more wonderful than you could ever imagine. And to even try and imagine me would be to be going after an idol. So what we are told here in these words, we will see his face. We're not told anything about his face, just that we will see it. John wants us to know that God's face is the greatest gift of eternal life. It is like that prettiest present under the tree. It can't be unwrapped now. We have to wait until the day of glory where we are given a glorified body with the ability to see him as he is. But beloved, let me tease. Let me give you some idea of what's ahead, of how great this gift is. In Jesus' last prayer in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus prays this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' greatest prayer, his greatest desire for you was to be able to see him in all his glory. Second, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What is the joy that was set before Jesus that made the cross bearable to him? It was seen again, the face of God, which is what The book of Revelation ends with the promise for you. Jesus endured the cross, and he did that so that you could see what makes it all worthwhile, the very thing that gives Jesus the greatest joy, the face of his Father. And again, this promise is is ours forever and ever. We will see him. This is certain because Jesus has come already to bring us to him. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 121, words that we looked at earlier this year, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In Christ, dwell upon this. We enter Christmas under the shine of God's face. The great benediction of the Old Testament is ours. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Christ, those words are amen now and forever so beloved christmas proclaims that the one who brings everlasting life has come jesus himself says i came that they may have life and have it abundantly john 10:10 10, 10. forever and ever we will flourish forever and ever we will be blessed Forever and ever, we will enjoy God. Rejoice in Christ. The true joy of Christmas never ends. Why? Because the gift of eternal life never ages. Let me leave you with two questions. Is the coming of Christ where you find your joy at Christmas? Examine your heart. Is the coming of Christ where you find your life? Let us remind one another of this good news Christmas Day and every day. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.